Hey, this is John Matalavich from the Human Advancement Podcast. Uh, rather than doing a cold open like I would traditionally do or, or like I plan on doing a lot of the time, I wanted to uh, just get uh, Dr. Buddy Tuchinsky in here right away. He's a, a chiropractor and a certified uh, functional medical practitioner. Um, I have these tremendous things to say about Buddy, and uh, the reason I wanted to get him on right away is just so um, so that he could probably reciprocate some comments that I that I could and compliments that I'm throwing at, throwing his way. Um, I just you know off the start, I'm sure as we get into this further and further, I'm sure you'll be a, a reoccurring guest as well. But um, I I have the utmost trust in, in what you say um, from a medical standpoint, and I I just love uh, talking to you and, and just getting your opinion on these things. Um, your uh, chiropractic office, the Blue Mountain Family Chiropractic, and, and your health food store, um, Healthy Habits, uh, Natural Market, Orwigsburg are, are, um, are two staples of, of how I live, and, and I appreciate what you're doing down there. And um, I'm, I'm happy we're, we're having a chance to sit down and talk about um, peak performance for, for athletes and executives now. Um, so what's going on in your world these days? COVID, COVID. COVID this, COVID that, but uh, no, I appreciate that intro. And uh, likewise, I, I respect what you've been doing now for the past couple of years here in, in our locality. And I know you, you train people all over and work with people all over, um, but it's nice to have some people with some a decent amount of education come back and uh, kind of give back to the, to the local community as well, because we are in a small rural area. And uh, I kind of feel like I'm alone sometimes because I kind of went away and came back as well. And I, we both grew up in this area. So it's, it's cool to be able to work with you. And uh, yeah, I, I spent the last 15 years of my career and full plus, including my, my education in undergrad and grad school, just trying to figure out how to help people function better and feel better. And um, initially that started out with people that are having, whether there's diagnosed issues or not, or they just know they're not feeling well or moving more into, into uh, your realm, which is optimizing performance, whether it's physical or, or mental. Yeah, I, one of the things, just kind of, kind of going off of that, I, that's exactly what I do. Is basically, you know, you're working with people that are, are have some kind of ailment and bringing them kind of back up to baseline. And what I like to do is take people from baseline and, and kind of help them excel um, into just you know a higher realm of performance. Um, just uh, something that I've already would like to kind of expand on a little bit. Um, when people don't necessarily think about with. Um, with, with performance or just wellness in general is something that both of us, I think, is, have kind of intuitively come across here, as you've just kind of alluded to. And that's almost just the concept of uh, quality of life. And that's one of the reasons I like staying here, you know, just with my background and, and what I've managed to accomplish. I've, I've had offers, uh, you know, across the country, uh, Silicon Valley, um, New England, all over the place. But, you know, I genuinely like um, Schuylkill County for, for what it has to offer. I like the fact that there's no traffic anywhere. I like the fact that even when there is traffic, where I, you know, if I just, there's, I always have a, just a perpetual roadmap where I'm two turns away from not being in traffic at all. And it just, there's so many reasons, especially with the, the advent of the internet and being able to train people remotely. Um, it really allows you to have kind of the best of both worlds here. And I think that's, that's one of the things that we have going for us. You know, I could be uh, a mile away from my house. I could, you know, be a half mile away from the nearest person. And that's something that so many people are, are missing out on. Yeah, for me, it's quality of life too. It's, it's I'd rather live here and raise my family here and, and not kind of join the rat race. And it's, the city's exciting. And I kind of been there, done that through grad school. But um, yeah, like you, I like going up on the mountain. We kind of hang out in the same, same spots, the same refuge up there. And it's nice to go out and not see anyone for, for many miles and many hours at a time. 
one of my uh, one of my one of my quotes, and and I'm sure we'll you, you might be able to um, kind of tear this apart at at the nutritional level. But uh, one of the, my favorite things about the area is it's one of the only places where you could go and get a Guinness and uh, three hot dogs for five bucks. Not yeah. too many places like that left in the country. Yeah, yeah. But um, so so tell me a little bit about your 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 practice there and what you're doing with um with this functional medicine work. Yeah, so I started out as kind of a semi-traditional chiropractor. And uh, so what that means is helping people with joint pain, neck pain, headaches, and, and things of that matter. And, um, but I quickly kind of realized that people have a lot of other shit going on. And um, it's all stuff that I saw that could be at least modified or, or at least helped a little bit, if not totally cured or resolved through just some simple lifestyle and dietary changes. And I mean, I was seeing people with back pain, but they also had issues with their, their bowels or guts. And you start talking to them. It's like, well, have you tried eliminating things like dairy, for instance, which is super common? Uh, no, my doctor never talked to me about that. Or you talk to someone with migraines, uh, same thing. Have you eliminated things in your diet? Have you tried to drink more water? It's just a lot of simple stuff that, um, and God bless the docs around here, the family docs, especially they have their work cut out for them because there are so many people per doctor, since we are in a rural area, uh, there's not a whole lot of doctor's clinics around here. So they don't have time to, to spend on this stuff. But, um, but from my perspective, it's like, Hey, there's more here that I could do for my patients. And yeah, they're coming in with back pain, neck pain, uh, muscle pain, but it's not necessarily because they only just tweak their back. It's because they're in such poor condition physically and metabolically that leads to many of their problems. So then that kind of started me down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out how I can best help these people. Um, because as we might talk about here, it's, it's not always as simple as just eating right, like a low fat diet, more vegetables, more fruits and vegetables. Sometimes it can be that simple, but uh, even if it was that simple, there's a whole psychology behind getting people to make those changes. And, and so that's what really has been, has been the um, kind of the, the most interesting and most difficult part of my career now as a functional medicine practitioner. It's kind of figuring out, where are the blocks or where are the root causes of people's issues? And then how do you kind of drill down and one, find them and then help them make those changes? Because with functional medicine, we can call it functional medicine. We can call it integrative health, integrative medicine. We can call it naturopathy. We can, there's a variety of terms for it over the years. Uh, but the fact of the matter is it's trying to find what people can change for themselves because what we do as doctors or practitioners, no matter the specialist, um, there's only so much you can do to someone. You need to help them do stuff for themselves. And that's what just the stuff they do every single day, day in and out, it's going to make the bigger impact versus that one-time surgery, that one, one-time injection, or even that, that pill they take once a day. It's, it's so, so, yeah. So for me, functional medicine has been trying to figure out what's the person's problems, what's their roadblocks that's, that's preventing them from being healthy or expressing more optimal health and function and then how to help them fix that. It needs to be integrative. I mean, everything, there's just um, an adaptation to impose demands regardless of, of whatever the, the input is. And, and for that reason, there is no quick fixes. It's, it's, an, it's, it's just a, a biological impossibility for there to be a quick fix. Um, uh, but one of the things that I want to get into here and uh, you kind of touched on it with this is is the idea of the gut health. This is something I've kind of kept, I've come across. So in as I was going through the exercise science segment of my degree in college, um, everyone at the time kind of viewed um, the whole degree is done through the paradigm of 
of skeletal muscle being like the formative foundation of kinesiology exercise science. And then as you start getting into a higher level uh, exercise science, either curricula or just outside learning, um, it starts becoming, a, you, you start to realize the significance of neuromuscular system and the central nervous system. Um, so then that kind of became one of the central tenets of kind of what I was um, trying to build um, and instill either in myself or with my athletes. But I think one of the more formative things that allows for that is, is the gut health. And that's something that I've kind of been coming around to. So I've gone through this transition of thinking that skeletal muscle is the most important thing in performance to thinking, all right, we need to maximize the central nervous system. And that's the most important thing. And now I've kind of gotten to the point where I think um, maximizing, and this is even outside of the realm of what I do um, as, as, um, as a practitioner of anything, as um, a strength and conditioning coach, as an applied physiologist, whatever you want to call me. Um, but I still think it, it's such a formative thing because there's such, um, there's such uh, long-term consequences on both of those aspects of performance, both on that skeletal muscle and on that central nervous system. Could you kind of talk about um, the gut as it relates to performance a little bit more? Um, specifically, um, could you, do you have anything that you could say about um, like the cranial nerves and how they're uh, related to the gut? Sure, sure. Yeah, so we're going down the rabbit hole here right away. Um, but first of all, yeah, so there, there's there's something with um, in, in high performance and trying to optimize performance that we have to understand is is that there needs to be a balance there. And, and so two couple things here. So we, there needs to be some balance, especially if you want long term success. Now you can over the short term, you can sacrifice a lot of your health to improve your performance, but that's only going to go so far. Like, um, I know you were big in the powerlifting and, and probably to a certain extent still are. And we know that through periodization, we can really kick the shit out of our muscles for uh, four to six weeks, depending on your age and your ability to produce enough testosterone and growth hormone and all that stuff. So you, during that time, you're, you're sacrificing um, your short-term health. Because during that time, you're going to see, and you're going to see a lot of times, especially if you're training hard enough, is your testosterone will drop. And you're going to see other adaptations by the body or not even adaptations, but responses to that high intensity training. And one that we're going to go into here in a second is, is the gut and the gut can be affected. So when we're looking at high performance, we got to, we got to also put that in the, in the larger context of what is it doing to your, to your body. And uh, I mean, some things, some things are just going to happen. You're, 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 it's really tough to get around it. Although you can minimize that impact. Like I use the example of this um, is, is I played baseball most of my life. And I probably sacrificed my long-term right shoulder uh, um, stability and uh, health. But the, the trade-off was that I played baseball for all those years and I gained all the, the advantages from being an athlete and from exercising and from having that uh, kind of teach me and, 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 and help me become a young man through coaching and getting camaraderie and teamwork and all that stuff. So there was a, there was a trade-off there. Um, but long-term, you need to realize like, okay, you're not going to do this the rest of your life. So as far as the, let's go back to the gut, for instance, and it is pretty well known in the functional medicine world, probably in the research world on the gut and athletes, that high performance athletes and high performance individuals, so that could be CEOs, et cetera, um, they tend to have poor gut, poor gut health. And the, the reason behind that is, or the underlying factor there is a high amount of stress. So if you are a star quarterback, uh, or if you're a CEO or someone moving up in a big organization and you have a lot of stress on you, 
that high constant output of cortisol is eventually going to affect the health of your gut lining. And then once you affect the health of your gut lining, you start to affect the immune system in the gut. So something called secretory IgA can often be suppressed in people that are under long-term stress and chronic stress. So you start to impact the gut lining health, you start to impact the, the immune system in the gut, and then you start to invite more things to start moving in. So you start to see different types of microbes, and that could be candida or yeast, it could be uh, different types of parasites, it could be abnormal amounts of uh, bacteria that shouldn't be there. And then once you start affecting the gut, then that will start affecting other things. So you're not gonna absorb and assimilate your nutrients the way it should. You're not gonna detox things well. You're gonna get more things into the bloodstream. So more, more uh, higher potential to have food allergies, et cetera, et cetera. And then as far as that is, you mentioned the cranial nerves and the vagus nerve specifically is the one that is most associated with this. So you start to, to uh, kind of get into this, this loop of the gut can affect the brain through the vagus nerve. And then you have the brain affecting through stress and other things affecting the gut through the vagus nerve. And um, it just it ends up becoming a, a vicious cycle. Have you heard of, um, this might be a mess, but have you heard of any of the studies where they, um, they severed the spine of frogs, but they left these cranial nerves in contact and then they put them in water. And then the ones that had their, cra their cranial nerves intact were still able to stay afloat. Whereas the ones that had their um, spinal cord and their cranial nerve severed uh, just sank. No, I didn't see that one. That's interesting. Yeah, that's yeah, that's pretty wild. Um, so one of the things uh, that this kind of leads into um, is actually this is something I've come across through both through a, a product that you have um, for so. This is my path on understanding coming into start into thinking about this a little bit more. Um, per the recommendation of our friends at Leader Canine, they um, had suggested the Bullhard diet, basically a raw diet for our dogs that we have here. Um, which, uh, so we started looking into this a little bit more, and then we we realized that some of these, uh, like the kibble that they're eating, it actually um, and some of the higher carbohydrate food, it actually lowered um, the acidity in the stomach um, to a greater degree than, than basically does the raw diet. And this actually um, led me to start thinking about um, stomach acidity more in terms of um, its context with regards to humans. Um, where does pH come into play uh, with this? And what are some of the things, is carbohydrate intake uh, changing the stomach acidity? Um, does that change, does that interfere with IBS and, and some of these gut ailments that you're seeing? Sure. Yeah. I don't know specifically if it changes the pH, but just a kind of a real quick primer on this is that when we, so digestion, the process of, of intaking food and then basically absorbing it and then eliminating what we don't need. So when we, in, our, in a perfect world, we chew up our food really well. We eat in a calm, relaxed state. So we want to be in the parasympathetic state. If Already everything you've said is completely against how I eat. It's just frantic <laughs> and big bites. Yeah. And you do, no what you, do what you got to do, but in a perfect world, we'll start with that and then people can follow it to the degree that they can, but you want to be in that calm, relaxed state because when you're stressed out, you're in that sympathetic fight or flight state. And when you're in that state, if you take the squirrel as an example, the squirrels are walking around looking for nuts and storing up food for the winter or, 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 or nourishing itself. When a hawk flies overhead, who cares about nourishing your body for the next few hours or storing up for the winter time? Because if you don't make it five more seconds, all that's kind of a moot point. 
So the squirrel goes to the fight or flight mode, gets the hell out of there. So when that happens, the um, digestion is shut down. You don't need to digest foods. And, and we see this in like horses, for instance, or cows. You see, you scare the horse or cow, what do they do? They crap and then they take off or they pee if you, if you scare an animal. So you kind of have these involuntary reactions where digestion kind of goes out the window. You decrease blood supply to the gut. Um, you decrease the secretion of enzymes and then the secretion of stomach acid. Because again, you don't need it um, in that fight or flight. What you do steer resources to is to the muscles and to the cardiovascular system. You want to increase the adrenaline or cortisol. You want to increase, increase the heart pressure, or I'm sorry, the blood pressure, the heart rates, uh, blood sugar, basically preparing your muscles to go into battle and to do a lot of work. Uh, but again, that's at the expense of digestion. So if you're in a sympathetic state while you're trying to eat and digest, um, that's not compatible. So that's going to definitely lower the stomach acidity and lower the secretion of digestive enzymes. So back to the perfect world scenario. You eat your food, nice, calm, relaxed state. You chew it up really well. You mix it with the enzymes in your mouth. Then you swallow it. It goes in the stomach. The stomach should be a certain pH or a certain level of acidity. If it is, then it breaks down our food properly, and it also sanitizes our foods. So all those bad bugs that I talked about before, the yeast, the parasites, and the bacteria are killed off by stomach acid in a perfect world. And then once the food gets to a certain pH and certain consistency, the valve opens up and it goes into your small intestine where it mixes with more digestive enzymes and bile from your gallbladder to break down fats and, and, and other components of food. And as it goes through your small intestine, you absorb your food through there or the nutrients through there while keeping the bad stuff out. And then it goes in the large intestine. We ferment the food further with the good gut bugs that are supposed to be in our, our system. And then we have a bowel movement. We get rid of what we don't need. And then there's some detox in there as well from the liver and gallbladder. Um, but to go back to the pH, what we see in a lot of people is, so I said that the, st the stress response can lower stomach acid. And that usually becomes an issue where people sometimes think they have too much stomach acid. Uh, but what really happens is they have suppressed stomach acid excretion. They eat a big lump of food. They eat it quickly in a, in a stressed out manner and a stressed out state. And then it sits there in their stomach and then kind of sits there and either ferments or the stomach does, um, it basically sees it there and then dumps a bunch of acid all at one shot. And um, then it starts to gurgle back up and that's when you get acid reflux. Um, but in either case, you don't want the stomach acid to be too low of an acidity or too alkaline because then we're not breaking down our foods. We're not sanitizing our food. Then it makes it down to the small intestine and it starts to wreak havoc there. So um, I don't know if you see this much in, your, in the population, but um, because you work with a little bit younger uh, population, but I think in like older athletes, you'll see more and, and in executives, especially because of the high stress, you'll see more acid reflux. Then they get put on acid reducers, whether it's neutralizers like Tums or uh, uh, proton pump inhibitors, like something like Prilosec or Zantac. And uh, that squashes those symptoms for a while, but then eventually they make it to my office as a functional medicine practitioner 10 years later. Now they're 35, 45 years old. And they've, had, they've had IBS for five or 10 years and wonder why it won't go away. And, and usually it, just, it starts from that whole cascade of events from eating stressed out to going on the stomach blockers or start acid blockers, acid reducers, leading to the uh, bad gut bugs that are, that are being formed further down in the system. So, um, but to go back to your original question, do carbohydrates lower stomach acidity? I don't know, but um, it does. What you said is, is more informative anyway. Yeah, I, I felt like we needed to, to, to look at digestion first before we started talking about that. Um, but I do know that for a lot of people, carbohydrates, especially grain-based carbohydrates, and I know people are going to roll their eyes because we hear about this gluten thing um, a lot. 
I have a tangent I could go on about that then. So after you're done here. Sure. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, whether it's trendy or not, or whether a lot of people that's in their head or not, there is, there is still a large portion of population that don't respond well to those grain based carbs. And then that can trigger the reflux. And then it basically upsets everything from there on down, as far as digestion is concerned, which affects a whole lot of things. To first, first two things. I had my first bout of uh, acid reflux um, in September. Um, and you know, what's interesting is when you're a healthy person, there's always the causality is always extraordinarily evident because you know the, the majority of variables in your life are lined up in such a manner that um, everything's fine until you, you do something. There's there's some kind of um, mutation in your in in your either what you're eating or or your lifestyle or whatever. And and I know it was when I was doing the the Right America. I had um, did you ever hear of a, a pizza a pizza puff? No. It's like a it's like a pop tart uh, made out of pizza that you get at gas stations in the Midwest. And the first day I found out about these, I had like three or four of them. And then I slept on the ground on my stomach, and that was the first time I ever had it. So as you can imagine, it it um, you know there's there's pretty pretty clear causality there. Um, as it relates to, so with the gluing thing, what I think is interesting is I actually, um, I got in a fight with an archaeologist about this who was saying that, um, that uh, and this was, this was at a bar, so of course, but um, he was saying that, and he, he had no, um, he was completely unaware of my background or anything because, you know, he was just talking and I was just sitting there eating my lunch by myself. But he started talking about uh, gluten and how, um, you know, all these paleo people are, are kind of uh, misfounded because, you know, we've had grain in our diet for such a long period of time. Um, as another aside on this, I think Sapiens, uh, the book Sapiens does a really good job of kind of um, dispelling that myth even, even further in terms of, you know, what, what um, industrial, what the agricultural revolution has done and just destroyed our teeth and quality of life and all kinds of things like that. But uh, what, what's interesting is the density of gluten in wheat uh, seems to have skyrocketed just in the past hundred years. So even if even if the majority of people with either celiac or non-celiac gluten sensitivity um, might have been able to withstand, you know, a, a, a small percentage of the gluten we're seeing today, you know, just the the way it's it, wheat is grown, it's not we're not looking at the same type of wheat that we were looking at a hundred years ago. That and the products that we, we, that gluten is gluten and that's good. And we like it because it's gives the bread that chewy texture and that nice texture. And so when a uh, food company is making their products, they're going to add, I mean, we, we sell at the health food store, we sell just the gluten and you can add that and it's, it's used as, a, as an ingredient in baking. Uh, but it's the whole, that's to bind the bread together. That's why a lot of gluten-free products, now they're, they've gotten a lot better in the past 12 years since we opened our health food store because the stuff we get in was dry and brittle and pretty much sucked. Um, but a lot of the gluten-free stuff does suck because it doesn't have that binder in there. And uh, But again, these days they're coming up with different formulations. There's anthem gum and there's other stuff that they use to hold it together. Um, but yeah, so the formulations, the foods, I mean, whether we were eating whole grains or not, they, it, they looked much different probably 2,000 years ago when Jesus was walking the earth. And, and eating his bread and all that stuff. Um, but it's a lot different today. And um, even if you accept, uh, let's, let's, let's buy the argument that gluten isn't inherently bad and it's, it's okay for us. It's either good or it's inert. Um, but you could take anything. If you eat it, 
12 times a day, every day for 35 years, it may start to, you might start to develop some sensitivities towards it. So if you ate eggs, breakfast, lunch, dinner, every snack uh, for many, many years, you might eventually develop an egg intolerance just because you're priming. Isn't that, isn't that really evident in the, uh, in the tests of the, uh, of food intolerances where basically with the frequency with which you eat something, you kind of um, denote a false positive just based off of eating it a couple times a day. Yeah. So yeah, a couple things in there. One is if you're not eating something, it could be a false negative because you just won't have any antibodies built towards it. Uh, two, if you're eating a lot, a lot, if you're eating a certain food a lot and couple that with a bad gut, so leaky gut or gut, gut permeability issue, whatever you want to call that. Yeah. Your, your immune system is going to react to it a little bit more. And that's the other side of this too, is like genetically you might be fine. Like, let's say that you test you at five years old and you're perfectly normal response to gluten or grains. And then you could take that same person at 40 and they might react off the charts to that same food component, whether it's gluten or whatever. Uh, the difference is that our guts just kind of break down over the years and it's just because of a poor diet. We don't get enough fiber. We don't feed our good uh, gut bugs, our microbiome. Uh, we develop, we, we, we have chronic stress. We break down the gut lining. We break down the immune system in the gut. Now, um, instead of that, that small intestine where we absorb our nutrients, instead of it being like a fine screen where we only let in what we want to let in. Now it's like taking the screen. I have my window here and poking a bunch of big holes in it with a screwdriver and then wondering why the heck I got, I got flies flying around in here. So our gut's the same way. We're supposed to absorb what we're supposed to, but keep out the rest. So as the gut breaks down, we start to allow some of these food fragments through and into the bloodstream. And then that's when the immune system says, Hey, that shouldn't be here. We're going to attack it or we just get a general response. Um, so even though it's not a, like a celiac sensitivity or gluten sense, a, a, a celiac response, which is more of an immune response, we can still get a general inflammatory response, even though we're not specifically allergic to it. So that's when we see maybe more of the histamine reactions. Uh, like we see the skin issues, like people get like dots all over the skin or skin. Reactions. I do. That's, that's something that's, that's very common with me. Like I said earlier about the Guinness, that's one of the first you things that, that or you get science, like people like, Oh, I got this tickle in my throat or I got this breathing problem, sinuses and I'm stuffy all the time. So it's the answer is like, Oh, just take this Claritin forever, which is what my wife was told until she got off a bunch of that stuff. And now she doesn't take Claritin at all anymore. Um, but yeah, usually all these things that we develop over the years, I and mean, we are talking about performance, but uh, all these, these, these health problems or minor health annoyances can interfere with performance. Um, start to investigate those things and start to look for those root causes and diet and gut health is usually one of the biggest factors in that. I, I think it's, it's all one in the same. I, I've been working on uh, something that's somewhat comparable to like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but, but more specific to athleticism. And, and though everyone kind of focuses on, um, on their athletic performance through their sports specific training, um, that's, that's uh, I think their ability to perform in their specific domain, be it swimming or baseball or, or whatever the hell. I think that is their ability to perform, overcome and adapt to stimuli is an emergent property of, you know, of, of, all, of what I, I like to refer to collectively as inflammation control, which is this broad base of, um, you know, sleep quality and all these things. So, I mean, yes, we're talking on one hand about wellness and it seems, you know, like there's a dichotomy between that and peak performance, but if you're only sleeping, you know, an hour and a half a night, you're not going to be able to recover from your, your three hour workouts every day. So uh, on one hand, they might seem like they're, um, they're kind of strained or, or unrelated, but, but it's actually um, a building block of, of being able to perform at, at a high level. Yeah. With the gut inflammation control is probably the biggest 
or, or, or poor inflammation control is probably the biggest reason why we see gut problems affecting so many other systems. And uh, you can go and Google or no, better yet, PubMed, so we get some, some reputable sources, but you can go to PubMed and type in gut problems and, I mean, type whatever health problem you want, health issue you want, you're going to find some papers that describe a relationship. Now, we might not always know the direct relationship, uh, but there is a relationship there between gut health and other things, and that link is probably inflammation from, for most people because when the gut's inflamed, I mean, think about it. When we eat an orange and we want the vitamin C from that orange, we get it through our, through our gut, through our small intestine, through absorbing that, those nutrients. So if that area is inflamed, you're going to absorb those, those inflammatory mediators as well and then inflame the rest of the body because by definition, inflammation is a general response versus a specific response like antibodies, for instance. So inflammation is a general response. So if you inflame one area of the body, that's going to circulate and affect multiple areas of the body. And like you said, when it comes to performance, when it comes to training, you want to have good infl infl inflammation control. That means the ability to turn it off when you need it because you, want to, you actually want to be inflamed uh, after training and when you're in the recovery period. And, and I know you watch uh, information from do uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick, and she talks yeah. about how when you take anti-inflammatories, natural curcumin or NSAIDs, you can blunt the you can blunt the recovery response. So you want to make sure you give your body that first 24 hours to uh, kind of express that inflammation because that's the body's healing response. But then beyond that, if the body can't then turn off that inflammation, you're going to set yourself up for long-term damage because you're going to be, you're going to become more catabolic at that point. You're going to be more likely to have different types of chronic injuries, cartilage breakdown. Uh, gut issues, uh, inflammation in the brain, where you're, you're starting to lose performance in the in brain function, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, inflammation control through the gut is probably the, 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 the connection there between gut health and this thing that we call optimal performance. There's two things on, on this I, I'd like to kind of expand upon. And one of the things that, one of the things that we've been talking about so far has been kind of the idea that just the interconnectedness of everything. And that seems to be an underlying tenet of the idea of functional medicine. And um, this might, you know, every, everyone says that and they kind of um, can intuit the idea that everything is connected, but then they go on to something like WebMD and they wonder why the symptoms of all these things are, are so similar. And it's because, you know, when there is some kind of response, you're going to get this, this general inflammatory response, which is kind of similar across the board. Um, and another thing I'd like to kind of uh, talk about here is just, um, I think one of the things people do not recognize when we're talking about gut health and its relationship to the immune system is the the, the scope of the, the elementary canal. Um, is that something that you could talk about? So yeah, let me take the, the first part of that first, the, um, the connectedness. And uh, a mentor of mine says, he said that the disease blood that goes to one place that causes one problem in your body goes everywhere. So there's no blood that just goes to the liver. There's no blood just goes to the right shoulder, for instance. So if you have something uh, kind of going wrong uh, metabolically, so let's say you've uh, greatly elevated blood sugar, that are starting to affect the liver, starting to cause fatty liver. That's going to have consequences elsewhere. Whether you notice it first or early on or not, you're still you're going to have consequences eventually. So that's why when we take more of a reductionist approach where it's, it's breaking the body up into its singular parts and trying to affect those, um, in this case, if we're just looking at muscle function in terms of training and we don't look at what's going on elsewhere in the body, let's say you also have acid reflux like we talked about, um, you need to address that acid reflux, that gut issue. Otherwise, eventually it'll start to express and start to cause problems in the muscle because the same things that you're doing wrong, whether it's poor sleep, shitty diet, excessive stress that's causing that acid reflux, eventually it's going to 
lead to causing muscle problems, or at the very least, it's going to going to um, interfere with your ability to recover and, and perform optimally. So uh, whether you feel it or know it or not, that's there is a detrimental effect there. Interesting. And then um, can you speak about that elementary canal? And I think just broadly, people don't recognize that though they think uh, they think of your basically the gut as something that's inside the body, but it's inside the body much in the same way that, you know, a, a tunnel with a road is inside of a mountain. It's still, it's still external to the internal environment of, of the mountain in some regard. So yeah. Yeah. So, so as, as it relates to everything, so we talked about how some of that stuff gets from the gut into the bloodstream and then we have that immune response or that inflammatory response. And someone might be thinking, well, it's already in the body. Why isn't it already having a response? And it's like you said, it's basically like a tunnel from our mouth to our anus. It's um, it's a canal, just like our ear canals on the outside. It's not on the inside of the body. It doesn't cross over into the bloodstream for instance. So it's basically uh, just an in-pouching of, of, of the outside world. And because of that, we have a quite different environment than we do on, on in the, in the internal part of the body, that are bloodstream and in the body cavity itself. So that's why when we get things that do cross over that shouldn't, that's why we have a, a much bigger response. And then um, we could talk about the microbiome and how we have this whole environment that lives within that canal. And uh, there's a symbiotic relationship where we provide them a home and then they provide us with different functions. One is it alerts our, our brain and our immune system to a potential incoming pathogen. So well before our immune system, or well before we have an infection internally that makes it into the bloodstream, if our gut microbe microbiome senses that there's something wrong, we'll actually see an increase or a ramping up of the immune system function in order to prepare itself that just in case there is an infection that makes it into the bloodstream. It also releases or produces or affects the production of neurotransmitters. And again, we don't know all the specifics there necessarily, but we do know there is a relationship between neurotransmitters that are found in the brain and the neurotransmitters that are produced in the gut or the effect that the gut has on those neurotransmitters. Um, we also see where we send signals back to the body and this can affect cholesterol. So when, when microbes break down certain fibers, we get something called short chain fatty acids, which then are absorbed in the bloodstream and almost act as hormone signals back to the liver. And one of those functions is to um, inhibit or be like a, a positive a negative feedback loop to cholesterol production. So once we start to learn, and that this is what I love about functional medicine is once we start to learn the biochemistry and the physiology behind how all of our body parts and systems function, we start to see like, oh, well, how can that relate to my high cholesterol now? Maybe it's my gut shitty and I don't have the proper balance of bacteria or I'm not eating the proper amount of fiber that's sending this feedback loop. And then, I mean, that's ignoring the fact that fiber also traps bile from the gallbladder, which is releasing toxins and um, it's made from cholesterol and then it carries it outside the body. So um, we kind of going back to an earlier statement said everything is interconnected and, and on the surface, you might think like that sounds like bullshit, but then you look at the physiology and then it, it all starts to really add up. I think, you know, I, I one of the perspectives I like to view things through is, is through, um, the framework of evolutionary biology and were something to not be essential. It wouldn't be a segment of our physiology. I mean, you can't point at specific things that seem as though they might be lacking function, but I mean, over time, as we learn more and more that, that just seems to just be, just be patently false. If you look at something like uh, the, the appendix, for instance, I mean, we used to think that that was just, you know, just some leftover remnant of our hunter gather gathering ancestry. 
but you know, in actuality, it, it still provides some some pretty crucial function. I mean, there's some pretty good research coming out of actually Harvard Health now on that. Um, and this is something I've been saying for a while when I was, you know, initially looking like a crazy person. And it's it's always good to feel validated about these kind of things as 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 the research comes to light. Yeah, we think the appendix is now like a bacteria factory to help replace our microbiome and and produce what what, what we need there. Um, but yeah, as, you said with the evolutionary stuff, that's, I, I like, I like looking at it through that when it, when there's doubt, look back over what has happened to us over tens of thousands of years and how our body developed and then try to closely mimic that environment for ourselves. Yeah, and that leads to, uh, to something else that I think is quite interesting. Um, and this is, this is a theory that I've, I've kind of been, been working my way through, um, though, though incomplete, I'd kind of like to talk through it with you. Um, and this actually goes back, uh, interestingly, to something that you said at the beginning about the idea of uh, the squirrel. Um, so I wish this is one of those times I wish I had a, a big old whiteboard for this. But um, so ima I, I imagine as though there are two separate um, eating strategies that have evolved um, concurrent. They've evolved in conjunction with... Um, biology but independently of so I, I think on one hand there's um, a predatory eating strategy and on the other hand there's there's a prey uh, a prey eating strategy um, and like you said with the squirrel I think it, it's more along the lines of um, the way they eat is you know more uh, almost kind of snacking throughout the day um, as opposed to something like, you know, a, an alligator who eats with less frequency, but eats uh, at bigger portions at, at a time. So I think on one hand, what you see with this, this more frequent eating uh, strategy is, um, are you familiar with uh, the, the relationship between the, the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex? Um, so as it relates to eating, when you see more frequent eating, it seems to activate the amygdala more, basically the fear center of the brain. Um, and I think this, this makes a lot of sense when you consider that these things are just grazing, so they're not really eating you know, um, anything large, they're just eating you know, either seeds or whatever, they're just kind of foraging, um, as opposed to uh, what you see in something like um, a higher order, like executive function that you need to kind of take down an animal or that you would need to be if you were a wolf or something like this. So I think on, which, which leads to the, the development of that prefrontal cortex. Um, can, you, can you speak to any of this? Is, is any of this making any sense to you that, that there would be these two separate eating strategies and that, that basically as they're, as they're evolving independently, they're also um, interacting with our physiology in some interesting ways, depending on which route you kind of, you kind of try to take as a human. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of theories on, on why perhaps our brain developed the way it is. Um, that's not, honestly, it's not one that, I've, that I'm familiar with. I've, I've seen something um, that's maybe along the same lines, but slightly different is it's like summer mode and winter mode. There is a, a book called The Pleasure Trap, and it talks about how our, our genes drive our, our hunger patterns and the foods that we seek out. And that if you look uh, back over the years, we have especially different, different latitudes, of course, because the equator, we have kind of the same food sources all year round, but especially in the more temperate areas of the world, you, you tend to have these seasons. So you have what's called summer mode, which the book describes as, uh, if you're talking about where we live, it would be kind of like um, August, September, October, kind of in that range. That's when we see all the apples on the trees. That's when we see a lot of berries come. That's where we see a lot of the fruit and vegetables that are ripe. So that's a time period where we have a readily available source of um, calorie dense food, so carbohydrates. 
And so during that time period, it makes sense that we would want to, as homo sapiens or, or even animals, other animals, that you would want to fatten up for the winter. And um, they postulate in there that we almost become, we're supposed to become pre-diabetic every end of summer into fall so that we can gain that weight easily. Our blood, our blood fat, or our, our body fat reserves go up. And um, so, and we, it, it stimulates more hunger. So the more you eat of that stuff, that sweetness or the carbs, it stimulates more hunger. So you eat more and more and more versus winter mode. So that's when now the weather changes. We don't have the food readily available. Neither have to live off of sources of like basically protein and fat or just live off your, your body fat reserves. So that we become more in a ketogenic state. Hunger drive is down. Um, and we go more in that mode. That's when we start to burn off the body fat. And then next year, the whole cycle repeats itself. But the problem with nowadays is we're always in summer mode because you can walk into Walmart and grab 20 million calories from either side of you on the walk in. And um, then we start to have those metabolic derangements. Um, it's interesting that you bring up calories. Can you kind of talk about um, whatever your current perspective is on the idea of uh, calories in, calories out being the being the, the, the modus operandi of a kind of weight gain, weight loss. Yeah. Hey, if you can eat Burger King and keep your calories low, then great. No. <laughs> um, so calories still matter. Um, I think they matter less than some people make them out to be. So let, let, me, let me put it this way. If you're in a caloric deficit, you're probably going to lose weight. Whether that's a healthy way to lose weight or whether it's easy, that's a different question. Because if you're eating let's say your base metabolic rate is 2000 calories and you eat 1500 calories of Twinkies all day long. One, you're going to feel like shit. And two, you're going to be hungry all the time. You're, you're gonna, you're, you're going to spike your insulin. You're going to, your blood sugar is going to be going like this all day long. You're going to get into that hormonal response or that response that we just talked about in summer mode where you're going to crave more and more and more. So you're going to be less likely to be able to sustain that longer term. Um, so that's why I tend to favor a lower carb type of diet. Now this is aside from performance, but a lower carb type of diet for those that want to lose weight because it makes it easier to sustain because you're not craving food all the time. And if you're eating less often, um, you're also going to be craving less food. So the more you eat, the more you want to eat. But if you get into the, to the rhythm where you're only eating once or twice a day, it uh, makes it harder to eat too many calories because you're only eating once or twice a day and you get full more quickly. And then you're less likely to crave foods with your blood sugars will be more balanced the rest of the time. Uh, if we go to the extreme, we go to the ketogenic diet. So we take, we remove almost all carbs and it's almost all fats. Um, that, that works well for a lot of people. And it, again, because it decreases the cravings because you're not craving more and it's, it, it's easier to burn your own body fat. It's easier to go longer periods of time because your blood sugar is balanced and you have the, you have the ability to burn fats a little bit better, but like I'll follow that and I won't lose weight because if I eat too many calories, because at the end of the day, you're still eating too many calories and there still is a, a balance there. But, um, so to answer your question, I do like lower carb type, type of diets. I like meat and veggies, ketogenic, maybe for the right person. Um, but it's, but calories still, still matter. Yeah. I like to, uh, I, I agree with you. I, I was training, uh, even when I was training for the right across America, I was doing, a. a I was doing fasted workouts. I mean, I was going into my longest rides leading into that, just completely, you know, 18 hours into a fast. Um, just because I did want, you know, the body's always going to have the ability to kind of use blood sugar as, as a fuel source as, as opposed to ketones, which is something that I was, I was all too aware of kind of going into that. But one of the things I like to say to people that are uh, 
firmly in the calories in calorie out camp is that they if they were to just drink a gallon of gasoline they should be good to go for the next couple months yeah they don't, they don't need to eat anything else after that so so uh, yeah, that's my argument too i say well eat 2,000 calories of sugar 1,500 calories of sugar well that's extreme too extreme i said but it's still the same it's the calories are the calories it doesn't matter and then i mean the whole the whole concept of calories is kind of kind of weird too when you when you get into it because it's just what's a calorie the the amount like one gram of the substance can increase a degree of water. I forget the definition is. Yeah. Um, but it's really, it's like, so, so how does like burning that, that food under a Bunsen burner equate to what the body does to it? And, yeah, and why should it be, why should it be measured, you know, before it's in the body? What happens to thermic effect of food? What happens to, to, to all these, just the hormonal profile of the individual kind of going into that? And, I mean, even if you just look at the menstrual cycle as, as a relationship with what, uh, what, what a calorie does and all, all kinds of things. For pregnancy. I mean, it's calories matter, but hormones matter more because a calorie of sugar is going to do something totally different to the hormonal response insulin than a calorie of fat. Yeah. I, I think in, in the purest sense possible, the calories in calories out people are correct as long as micronutrients are accounted for. Yep. But I just think there, there's so many things that we have yet to account for um, within that theory. Were we to account for those things, it'd be a different story. Um, you know, moving forward with you know space food, or you know astronauts, whatever, um, we might be able to make it work. But but for and, now, and of course, the biggest proponents of this is it's always like a 24 year old fitness Coke. trainer with like a 12 pack of abs and and yeah. yeah, when I was that age, you could eat you could eat whatever the hell you want and feel pretty good and look pretty good and, and maintain healthy body fat. But and it's almost all, it, invariably, it's almost always a, a fitness trainer that I, that I argue about with this or a nutritionist that works with uh, the fitness population athletes. Well, I mean, if you uh, look I at, work with a 45 year old mom and tell me if your theory works and see how well it works for you. I mean, even if you look at like, if we were to go into dietetics, where these people of dietetics are getting their, their research from, it's all industry funded. So, I mean, of course, Coca-Cola is going to want to tell you that, that you can eat these things and everything's fine you just got to count the calories um are you familiar with uh michael pollan's work either um omnivore's dilemma or in defense of food yeah it's been probably 15 years since i read either of those but yeah i like i, I like the stuff um that in defense of food actually had a pretty good line in it um it was actually talking about uh formula versus breast milk and it was saying that the story of formula is that um it's a story of one overlooked nutrient after another so just over the past decades, you know, as they realized they were screwing up somewhere along the line in terms of, of their formulation of the formula, um, you know, they just kind of have to keep re reassessing it and remanufacturing re re it with, with some kind of new nutrients. So, you know, up to this point, I mean, it, it's definitely still going on under the same. Yeah, more recently they started, they, they're now they're trying to add DHA, which is great. You should have DHA in those and, and DHA and then vitamin, more vitamin D now. So, but yeah, what about the kids 20, 30 years ago? And and if you can't breastfeed, hey, that's that's formulas. Thank God we have it. But mm -hmm. um, if there's a choice, uh, breast milk is definitely better. And and we, from personal experience, you said like you mentioned, breast milk is um, or formula. Every visit we went to when we were having our daughter, when my wife was pregnant, they'd give you like a whole booklet full of these coupons for the formula, and they give you free formula and all this stuff. So they really they really push it. And and um, like I think Paulin says in the book, it kind of starts you off from birth hooked on the, the processed food system. Totally. Um, all right. That's good, good information so far. I'm glad we, we kind of covered that. So um, 
I, I was just informed the other day that you have some, uh, some new mushrooms growing in your yard. Is this true? You have some morels? Planting them. Yeah, they, they, they'll probably take up to maybe a year or so to, to really take root. Because they have to grow all their mycelium first and build up a good network before they can start pushing up and forming the fruiting body. So it, it'll be a while. But I just spread those yesterday. Mushrooms is something I, I would like to get into into a little bit more here. Um, my my extent with mushrooms on, on kind of my property here is I, I've been growing. Um, I've have I have some inoculated shiitake logs here. Um, it took probably eighteen months to fruit, but we finally got. Uh, first time was in the winter. We probably got maybe three mushrooms off of uh, off of the log, and, and we just had a flush. We probably got eight or nine. Um, could you talk a little bit more about um, the value that various types of mushrooms play in health? Yeah, and I'm, I'm not, by no means a mushroom expert, and I would direct people to, we'll talk, we'll still talk about it, but um, Fantastic Fungi. I don't know if you, have you seen that yet? No, by Paul Stamets? Yeah, it's awesome. It's, I think you might be able to find it. I think you can download it now. It's like not on Netflix or anything yet, but I think you can go to their website and um, download it or rent it or something like that and stream it. Uh, but a friend of mine got it a few weeks ago and and I uh, was able to watch, I got there a little late, but I was able to watch most of it. Uh, but really, really fantastic. And Paul Stamets, he's like the godfather of mushrooms. Yeah, um, he's, but, he's an inspiration. I would, I would direct people to his TED talk, kind of just yeah. talking about just even using oyster mushrooms to clean up oil spills, all kinds of crazy, crazy they, they stuff. They do all kinds of crazy stuff. And But the reason mushrooms are such a big deal for us is that mushrooms are actually more like animal than they are plants so uh, genetically so when we when we consume mushrooms we are gaining the benefits of their their components just like we can eat an animal and get, get the benefits of the protein and that's a little bit easier for us to use than eating plant protein for instance um, same thing with the mushroom with their with their health benefits so um, it just seems like um, using their components we we have closer I guess closer fitting receptors, for instance, we see this in with um, psychedelic mushrooms, so psilocybin, where we actually have receptors that the psilocybin fits onto and then creates an effect. Um, so it's just, it's amazing how, and it, it's very close, closely uh, resembles some of our neurotransmitters. And so mushrooms are just, I mean, they're incredible. They're good for immune function. They're good for detoxification. They are adaptogenic for the most part, meaning that's if, um, so say you have an immune issue, if you are autoimmune where your immune system is too high and you take certain mushrooms, uh, like reishi, for instance, it won't increase your immune function more making the autoimmunity worse, but it'll actually modulate it and, and slow it down. Uh, versus if someone needs more immune function, like let's say you're chronically sick and you have chronic infection, you can use the same mushroom to Im improve your, or improve your immune system or support your immune system. So you really can't go wrong with mushrooms. And when I have functional medicine patients, like I have one now where she has been a mess now for years, she basically can't leave her house because she doesn't have the energy. She's just totally just washed out and, and she's chronically ill. Could be Epstein-Barr virus, could be Lyme's. She tested positive for all that stuff. Could be mold that's found in her house. It could be a variety of heavy metals. Um, but when I get someone that's a basket case like that, so to speak, I just start them with mushrooms because it's, they're relatively safe and they can have a really huge impact on people. Uh, so what, what mushrooms specifically are you talking about? Are you, are you recommending for people? If it's, if it's for general performance, general health, you can't go wrong with um, a blend. So Stamets has his, I forget, do you use Stamets stuff often? But no, he has, I, it's called like, um, there's like eight or 10 mushrooms in there. Um, I use something from real mushrooms called the five defenders. I and, have that here. And so those are pretty good. And, there's a debate there whether you want the mycelium, which is what Stamets stuff does, 
has in it, or if you want the whole mushroom, the pruning bodies, which is what real mushrooms do. Uh, so I'm kind of playing around with those right now. I'm, I've been using real mushrooms. I might switch over to mycelium based stuff and Paul Stamets formulas. Um, but things like the ones I can think of, I'm not sure what's in five defenders because I use that plus other ones, but it's like turkey tail, uh, which is supposed to be really good for immunity and has some pretty good research there. Uh, Rishi, which a red Rishi, which is Ganoderma. And that is good for, or can be supportive of um, immune function and detoxification. And that's actually one of the most studied natural medicines out there is the red Rishi or Ganoderma. I mean, I forget how many PubMed articles, there are thousands and thousands just in the English language, uh, let alone the Chinese language, which is where most of them are found. Um, so turkey tail, reishi, lion's mane, which- From is, the performance standpoint, I think that's 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 such a big idea. one. Absolutely, yeah, for, for clarity of thinking and just uh, have some of that in your coffee and that is, that is really good for uh, performance. Um, what else? What am I missing? Chaga, which is good for the gut, but it's also good for immune function. And uh, I feel like there's one I'm missing there, but I can't think of it right now. That's, no, that's a, that's a pretty good. Oh one. no, cordyceps. So cordyceps, oh, yeah. lion's mane. Are, I would say the two best ones for performance. And um, cordyceps, depending on the person, can be like a natural Viagra. So that is just good for vitality, good for testosterone, I believe. But yeah, cordyceps is nice too. It's a it's a real nice golden color too. So you get that around the rim of your white coffee mug is that is that does that have something to do with some kind of uh, relationship with the nitric oxide production associated with the cordyceps i don't know if it's that or if it's just that it improves your hormonal response so testosterone growth hormone but um but yeah cord cordyceps is a weird one i think that's i think that's the one where it the spores get laid in the um in the is it, is it like mealworms or insects and grows out of their brain basically and kills them mm-hmm yeah, the, I mushrooms are an interesting supplement to take because some some things I just take kind of, um, I take at the word of the manufacturer that it's that you're seeing some kind of benefit um, in terms of health or performance. But with like the lion's mane, um, I mean, you, you really see it right away. I mean, you see it just as you would see uh, um, a spike in productivity from from caffeine. I mean, it, it is it is that that evident. Yeah, I agree. A lot of natural stuff. A lot of the supplements, well, one, they're formulated super low dose because they don't want to cause any problems. So that's why a lot of times you don't feel an obvious change. Uh, but about of all the natural supplements out there, the mushrooms are one of those ones where you can take it and notice it pretty quickly if, if it's working for you. Uh, what about, so one of the things we've been skirting around here a little bit, uh, but, but kind of almost touching on is the idea of vitamin D. Um, what are your thoughts on vitamin D, um, its supplementation, its efficacy? Yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a tricky one. So um, uh, another mentor of mine says that a vitamin D deficiency, so if you get tested and it's low, doesn't mean you need to take vitamin D. It's indicative of a sunlight deficiency. So uh, because going back into how the body and everything is connected and how there's one thing can affect another another, same thing with something like vitamin D, because if you're low, it's probably because you're not getting outdoors enough and getting into sunlight, getting exposed to sunlight. So you can take vitamin D and again, that's very reductionist and saying, but you need that vitamin D3 level elevated in the blood and you get retested and hey, it's higher. And I think that's beneficial because I've seen it personally. I have the genetic variation where I have a low density of vitamin D receptors, so I produce less vitamin D. And if I don't take it and I don't get out outdoors enough, uh, my vitamin D will like tank down like a 15 and within a matter of a year or so with not taking anything. 
Um, and then I get lethargic. I, f- I get sick more often. I, I feel like I get muscle, the tendonitis more often. So I think and taking vitamin D remedies, all that. So I think that can be helpful, but I think you also need to look at, well, how much sunlight exposure do I get? Because going back to how we talked about genetics and our ancestors and how we developed over thousands of years, uh, one of those things that we developed to have a response to is just the sunlight and chemical reactions happen at the surface of the skin. We produce, yeah, we produce vitamin D, but there's also a lot of other things that happens as, as well. So I think one, having proper levels is important. And then two, yeah, get it from supplementation, but also get out in the natural sunlight as well. I one so a couple things here. I one of the things I think is interesting is you know what you just described when your vitamin D tanks almost sounds as though it it could be misdiagnosed as ADD, uh, which I think is probably um, a pretty common occurrence kind of across the board. Um, this is something I've been kind of diagnosed with, and I take vitamin D almost like um, like a medication for for. Uh, uh, the ADD symptoms. I think it's fantastic for cognitive function. Um, and you know, not, not, it's not a speedy thing or anything. It's just, you know, I, I feel more attentive than I otherwise would. I feel less apathetic. I think, I think it is fantastic. Um, and also, and also consider, um, so here's, here's another thing with vitamin D that we're, we're learning and we don't know exactly the right answer to this yet, but, um, so let's, let's use an example here. So iron and ferritin is a storage form of iron. So what we see is that in people with chronic infections, we see that the iron in the bloodstream tanks goes really low, but their ferritin goes way up. And it's almost like the body is sequestering or hiding away or storing iron so that's not available for the microbes so the infection to use because bacteria will use metals to uh, function just like our, our, our body uses it to function. So it's, it's our immune system or our body somehow knows to, all right, let's hide it away so if you get diagnosed with anemia, they might say, oh, your iron's low, take more iron. But if you have a chronic infection, that's just, you're just feeding the fire. So vitamin D they're finding out could be a similar situation because what we see in the, in the research is that vitamin D is often low in various illnesses and diseases and autoimmune syndromes and stuff like that. So we can either say, aha, it's low and that's what's causing it. So let's juice it up or which, which we did about 15, 20 years ago, we, that's what we thought. Or more recently, it's people are stepping back and saying, hey, maybe it's the opposite effect. Maybe these illnesses are driving it down, using up more vitamin D or the body's not making as much on purpose. So are we doing the body a service by increasing it artificially? So I don't have the right answer for that, but I want to point that out because your vitamin D is constantly low. Maybe there's something else going on that you need to address. For me, it's probably the receptor density or the, the, the genetic variation, but for someone else, it could be an underlying gut infection or chronic infection or, or something else going on. So um, two things here, one of which is um, I like what, it, what your mentor said about the idea of sunlight versus um, kind of supplemental vitamin D. And one of the, one of the very concrete um, examples we have of, of the delineation between the two is, I mean, if you just look at the, the breakdown of uh, vitamin D as a supplement versus vitamin D, uh, from sunlight, you know, when when uh, vitamin D from sunlight gets broken down, um, it gets broken down into melatonin, whereas that does not happen with the supplemental vitamin D, which I, I think is fascinating. Um, and and people kind of uh, again intuitively know this just because you know the first day of spring when they go out and in the sun a little too long and they kind of get sleepy afterwards is from that from that um, from that breakdown of that of that uh, vitamin D from the sun, which you know it's our own um, innate ability to kind of um, auto-regulate vitamin D levels as opposed to um, what can happen with vitamin D toxicity where you see that from like supplemental vitamin D. 
And even with sunlight, we have um, vitamin A, for instance, and there's a, a neurosurgeon, he's big into this, uh, getting out natural sunlight and avoiding artificial blue light. But, um, and I, I mean, he sometimes I have trouble following what he's saying because he, he makes it so complex. But basically, um, one of the posts that I read of his or blog post or article, he talks about how something like vitamin A gets recycled from the natural sunlight. And a lot of that happens in our eyes is retinol. And um, that happens with natural sunlight, but it doesn't happen with artificial blue light, like coming off the screen right out me or, or overhead lights at that night. So it's interesting that, um, again, it goes back to what, what one thing, I mean, we can do one thing and control it artificially, like taking a supplement, or we can get out in the sunlight, which helps us do the same thing and probably a million other things for our body. One of the few things I've heard of as uh, problems with uh, supplemental vitamin D is the, um, with vitamin D toxicity is the idea of arterial calcification. Um, is that something you've heard of? Yeah. Um, it's, I've never seen someone with too high vitamin D. I, okay. All right. And, and even, and even like you could take really high, like I took handfuls of 5,000 unit pills for like months and months and months. I like <laughs> now, not every day, but when I pour them out, I just pour them out and pop them in. They taste like Smarties. I got yeah. the ones. So I'm probably taking like 50,000 a couple times a week. Uh, not all, not now, not all the time, but at the time I was, and I went from like an 84 to like a 115. That's the highest I've ever seen. And I was taking handfuls. And if you look in the literature, if you even do Google search on vitamin D toxicity, some of the only ones you can find, um, I found a couple cases there in kids and it was because the pharmacist made this liquid up and he missed a transposed or miscalculated, mis mm -hmm. moved the decimal point over. So the kid was taking like a hundred thousand a day instead of 10,000 and took it for like six months. And then they got too much vitamin D and then they started having symptoms of too much calcium in the blood. But I think that's, if you're taking a standard dose, especially it's almost impossible. And, and you can't, you can't OD by taking, you can take a whole bottom of vitamin D right now. You might get the, an upset stomach or heartburn or something, but it's not going to give you, it's not going to cause that hypercalcification in the blood. And so it takes a lot. Now I do have a patient, she has uh, parathyroid uh, issues and her blood calcium is high to begin with. So with all that said, with people with, parathyroid issues or calcium blood level issues, you need to be careful with uh, extra vitamin D. Um, have you ever heard of uh, headaches from vitamin D? Um, it seems as though it might be, might have something to do with uh, dropping magnesium levels. Um, not specifically. No, I haven't probably more to do with maybe calcium. So if they're low to begin with and their body wants to move more calcium in their bones and the vitamin D is not helping them do that. And you take a bunch, maybe it momentarily drops the vitamin or, or the calcium levels, but I don't know. I haven't seen it at all. Okay. Interesting. Well, I guess we've been doing this for a while, so we should probably, probably wrap this up, but I, I'd love to have you on this again. And you're uh, got a whole lot of information and I don't know. I, I, I think the, unfortunately or fortunately, we both almost have a, these schizophrenic uh, diatribes here where I, I don't know what, what has any utility and, and what's just us rambling to each other, but We'll yeah, that. if it does anything, like, like a lot of times I get worried that we don't go into enough depth or detail. And um, that's because I'm used to seeing some of my nerd friends on podcasts and they're like, like they're just the vitamin D guy. And that's all I do. That's all I do on the podcast circuit for that. But um, I think our goal here should be, or my goal anyway, is just to introduce a lot of different concepts. Mm -hmm. And uh, with what I do in my practice, uh, they, they often call, often call functional medicine practitioners the, the hyper generalist instead of the, the hyper or the super generalist, instead of the super specialist, because in medicine these days, we got all these super specialists where you're a cardiologist, all you do is the, the heart or your 
neurologist and all you work on is a brain. So with functional medicine, it's kind of like looking and trying to put everything together because of that. I don't know all the fine details of every specific thing, but, um, but yeah, the, the goal, the goal for people watching here is, and our goal for them is to just introduce a lot of concepts and scratch the surface a little bit. And then hopefully that, that whets their appetite to go digging deeper. And cause there's lots of resources on the internet. There's lots of books, um, that talk about everything that we talked about today. What are some, uh, what are some, uh, outside resources you would recommend for people that want to kind of learn more about some of the things you've been talking about? Oh, geez. Um, let's see. Sometimes like we talked about Dr. Rhonda Patrick. Yeah. She's, she's fantastic. Super nerd. So if you're a super nerd, you'll love her. And she, she deep dives everything. I was actually a member of her. I think I still am a member of her paid, uh, membership portal. You pay like 25 bucks or 30 bucks or whatever. And you get her, all her podcasts and, and I like her stuff because she gives you all the notes along with it and uh, gives you all the citations. That's really great. I really like high intensity health and from a performance standard, they do talk about performance and now he's a big carnivore keto, uh, low carb type of type of guy, but they've gone through over the years, they probably have 500 episodes uh, talking about all sorts of stuff. So whatever your topic is, go to the website, type it in. Like there's a great one I refer to a lot on Parkinson's and how a ketogenic diet can really help reduce the progression of that and reduce tremors. Uh, so high intensity health, uh, they are really great. Tim Ferriss podcast on you. You're a big fan of his. Yeah. And, um, that's why we're here. Yeah. And like, we're like, we're talking about today. I don't know how, how long we've been talking now, but I like his stuff because it, he gives his, 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 um, guest time to really expand upon and then do a deep dive on things. Um, you know, his doctor, um, uh, Dr. Peter Atia, is he someone you're familiar with? Yeah, I like him. I used to think he was too grumpy at first. And actually, he talks about that he was too grumpy and pissed off at the world for many, many years until he found um, meditation and Sam. I was a Sam Harris, I think. Yeah, do you uh, use his app? Stuff. I should use it more. Yeah, I, I, one of those things that I don't, I practice or I preach, but I don't practice is meditation enough. So I, I do need to, but I, I love his stuff. Um, but yeah, Peter T is great. And he has the drive, I think it's called. Um, there are a lot out there. Nourish, 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 uh, balance, thrive, NBT. Um, they're functional medicine practitioners out in California and they have, a, it's a health coach and uh, he's an MD PhD. They have a lot of really good information as well. So, but yeah, tons of great information out, out there on all these topics. And once you listen to some of this stuff, some of the stuff might seem like a little crazy or, out there or complicated but once you listen to it a few times you start to get the idea and and it all comes down to so there's a little bit mixed here there's there's you don't want to overcomplicate things to the point where you don't do anything um anything you can do to improve upon what you're doing now is going to be an advantage especially for high-end athletes so to kind of circle back to the performance end um we're talking to people your viewers here that are probably 99 percentile in their sport their field or potentially they are whether they are or not, but to go from yeah, to go from 99 to like the 99.9, they're, they're very small tweaks and small changes. And then you want to go from 99.9 to 99.99. It's, it's just small minuscule things. And we look at Olympic athletes, for instance, I mean, a, a change in the material in there and in the suit that they use to swim can shave off a 10th of a second, which can mean placing versus not placing. So same thing here with diet, life, uh, diet and lifestyle optimization. It's, it's, we're just shaving off those, uh, tenth of a point of something and it's to improve your, your function that much more. And, and um, the problem I often see is that we see these really gifted and great athletes and uh, Rich Froning, I use them all the time. Like he said, his diet was crap for many, many years. 
Um, but my answer to that would be, what if, what could he have been, how much better could he have been if he would have paid attention to that stuff? Um, but talent aside, genetics aside, if you're listening to this now and you say, well, I'm feeling pretty good following X, Y, or Z, well, try to follow something else, A, B, and C, and then measure your results. And yeah, that might be a little extra work or it might, might take a little extra effort um, because it's not eating pizzas to fuel your workouts. You might be eating uh, kale and steak instead, um, but just try it for a period of time and see how you feel. I know for, for, for certain that long-term sustainability, you're going to do much better by following a slightly better diet than just eating junk foods. I, I agree with that. And one of the things that, that kind of just to bring back the idea of meditation uh, with, with mindfulness, if you're more mindful moment to moment and you're thinking about things um, in a more binary manner where you're not getting inundated with details, I mean, it's pretty clear at any moment to be able to tell what you're supposed to be doing and what you're not supposed to be doing. I mean, sure, you could be kind of caught up in the details of should I be having carrots with dinner or should I be having a sweet potato with dinner? But for the most part, you know, when we think about things more binary in terms of is this a good decision for my performance or is it a bad decision for my performance? It gets a lot, it gets a lot more black and white. It gets a lot more clear. Yeah, I say that mindfulness has to be like, like the, um, the foundation of it all. So I say it all, I don't use this meditation app as much as I said. I still I do meditate. I do do yoga. And the benefit of all that is it it's, it's becomes a practice that you get better at. And then um, by, by doing that, it makes you, I guess, mentally tougher in a way or mentally more aware. So now you go to the fridge, you open it up and you see that leftover pizza there and you know you got a training day coming up and um, maybe you shouldn't be eating that. It, it gives you that ability to take that split second pause and say, well, why do I want that? Oh, it's just because I, I just want that quick gratification. Um, but what I really should do is this. So really meditation is just making that gap from the stimulus to response wide enough to where you can interject some cognitive thought and make a better decision. That makes a lot of sense. That, that talks, that goes back to that idea I was talking about earlier with um, uh, that prefrontal cortex versus the amygdala where you're, you are using more executive function as opposed to being more reactionary. Um, and I think that's because, you know, as, as you make more and more good decisions, you're to kind of, um, uh, make it a little bit more human. I, your body kind of trusts your mindfulness a little bit more when your decisions are better as opposed to when it need, needs to be a little bit more reactionary and some of these autonomic responses just kind of need to take over. Yeah, if you want the monkey brain to take over and function more, which is more reactive, not planning ahead, not nothing. Sleep less and eat sugar. It's just react. Yes, yeah, it's, it's purely reactive. It's based on fear, anxiety. I mean, it's all the stuff that we're, all the crap we're dealing with these days in the news. Um, if you want to let that if you want to make that help that, or if you want to, if you want that to be stronger or more likely to happen, then you let it happen. But if you want to train your body to have more of a cognitive reaction to it or, or a higher brain, higher primate, so to speak function, then you practice that part of the brain. And it, it's, it's a practice. And that's, if you look at some of the, these yogi masters or, or some of these people that are really good in meditation, um, it's, it's never, it never gets easy. It never gets effortless. And it's always a constant practice and something you just have to practice every day, just like everything else. And it's stuff that you don't have to spend a lot of time on either. It could be five minutes every morning, every night. It could be 10 minutes once a day. It, could, it doesn't have to be for an hour or two at a time or anything like that. Ounce of prevention. It could, be cure. Sets. It could be in between sets. You're doing heavy signals at that 90% you need a three to five minute break. Meditate during that time. 
I agree with that. So, so what's the uh, again? This is I guess the long form version of this. But what's the uh, the Buzzfeed the Buzzfeed listicle style? What are the three big takeaways here that that you want to kind of get instill in into people's minds as as they leave us today? Oh hell, I don't. What the hell are we talk about? Yeah. <laughs> so I would say that I, I don't know if it's going to be three. We'll we'll see how many we can list. But I would say that um, one is that everything is connected, and and you can't just treat one system and isolate it at the expense of others. So if we're just looking at, if you just want muscle atrophy, I mean, you got to pay attention to all the other stuff. I mean, that includes getting proper sleep. That includes getting out in the sunlight. That includes doing everything that human beings need to function properly. Uh, going back to my mentor. And he's, another thing he says is that um, nature is non-negotiable. And he uses the example of a plant in the corner. That plant needs sunlight, needs good soil, needs water and it needs the carbon dioxide in the air. So, so we're the same way, we need certain things. The problem with humans is that we can go a long time not getting those things, and we can rob Peter, they pay Paul to, to compensate for it until things start breaking down to where we realize something is wrong. So we want to be, again, a higher primate, we wanna be more cog cognitive than that and say, well, we're gonna, we're gonna address these things right now. And that's probably one of the, the regrets going back over the years, uh, going back into playing college ball, where like I, by my second or third year, just from the course load and from drinking beer and, and eating ramen noodle soup and, and hot dogs and, and, and mac and cheese, like my performance mentally and physically suffered, I think because of that lifestyle. And if there's one thing I go back and tell my, my younger self, it's like, just take care of yourself a little bit better in that respect. And then you'll be able to function in the higher, uh, higher ability for a longer period of time. Um, because eventually that stuff catches up to you. And again, probably a lot of your viewers are younger athletes and, and we're invisible or not invisible. We are invincible at that age. And it's sometimes hard to, to really accept a lot of this stuff. But with that said, we're starting to see this message out there more and more. We're hearing it from Joe Rogan. We're hearing it from Tim Ferriss. We're hearing it from a lot of the popular uh, personalities out there now. So I think it's, it's, it's more a little more prevalent than, than when I was in school. You're younger than I am. So I don't know if, you notice a difference going through those formative years. If, if you got that message or maybe it was still, I, I don't know. I ignore my peers. That that seems to be my preferred, my preferred style. Yeah. So I can tell you, I was not necessarily a popular guy. Um, last, last question here. Last two questions. What's in the jar in the background over there? This thing here? Uh, no other side there. Yes. Yeah, it's just uh, decoration. I guess you can make tea. Like I can throw some uh, herbs in there and some mint and and or lemon water and stuff like that. I had a I had a patient. She is a probation officer by day and an interior decorator on the weekends. And um, if it was up to me, I'd have like a desk with like four walls with all there. these shitty books in the background. Like yeah, or not even or not even that. Um, so she she offered the help and and so she she kind of came up with that thing and and some of these other things. Like there's like what's that little plant there, whatever that yep. is. Yep. That's like a little cactus or something. And I've stuffed like a little tea thing, but yeah. I've been using uh, some of the coffee that you have there to make cold brew. That's been one of my projects since all this started. And that's, that's what you can put in that jar. That'll, that'll kind of keep you fired up all day. Last question. What about that? What about that picture over there? I can make a better picture than that. So that is Megan. She drew that. She's six years old now. I think she drew that at like four or five. And it's actually the regular piece of paper. It's holding up pretty well, so I, I leave it up there. Okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna send you one that you got to put over top of that. It's gonna look ten times better. Okay. Uh, where uh, where can people find you? 
People can find me uh, if you want to find me directly. I have a website, drtachinsky.com, and Tachinsky is spelled touch in sky. So my website is drtouchinsky.com. And uh, it's kind of like my functional medicine website and has all our information on there. Um, but the big project we're working on right now, it's called The Uprising. And it is a, we call it The Uprising because we want to see an uprising and people taking control of their own health. And we had this project in the works now for about six months. And uh, we, we, we originally created it to be like a membership-based model where you join for a couple bucks a month and we go through and we go through step-by-step step some lifestyle changes in order to improve your health. But with all this COVID madness, so to speak, we decided to just launch it for free. So you can go to uh, Facebook, type in The Uprising and look for our, our, our group there. It's free. There's no charge. Uh, we have a little sun with a thumbprint or a fingerprint in the middle of it. You can't miss the logo. And what we're doing now is we're just going week by week. We're going through different habits. So we did water consumption. Uh, first this week we're doing decluttering next week. We're going to talk about food. And, uh, by the time you see this and get on the, on the group, who knows what, what, what step we'll be at, but it's working together. We have 1400 people in that group plus, and it's just, um, teaching a concept and then practicing it and then challenging the group to follow it for five days and then share their troubles, their experiences, their benefits, and kind of all working and supporting one another to make those changes. And they're all simple changes, but can have a pretty profound impact on their health, especially when you start adding one habit to another habit to another habit. So uh, I would say definitely if you do one thing, join that group and, and see what you learn from there. Awesome. Well, good talking to you, sir. I'm, I'm, sh I'm sure I'll be reaching out more to do this as, uh, as we progress. Yeah. Anytime we'll have to drill down on some of these topics and um, see what comes up. All right. The Human Advancement Podcast is a division of Ruthless Performance, whose focus is creating champion athletes through the application of sports science, expert collaboration, and the ruthless pursuit of excellence. You can learn more about Ruthless Performance by visiting ruthlessperformance.com, specifically through our online education tab. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at ruthlessperform. The Human Advancement theme was written by Bernie Wallace Savage. Find him at wallacesavage.bandcamp.com and on Instagram at Bernie.Wallace Savage.